First and Second Corinthians in uh, future uh, versions of BTI. This will probably be two lectures anyway. So um, <clears throat> we finished off, if I remember right here. We finished off at the uh, the issue of tongues, and I, I'm not going to spend a lot more time on that right now. Uh, later this summer, I'm going to preach a whole message on this um, issue, which just won't go away. Um, I wish it would, but it, it won't go away. There, are, um, the latest estimate is 620 million people in the world who claim to speak in tongues. Um, it's a. It is the ma- most massive heresy in the uh, in the history of the church uh, in two thousand years. In terms of just sheer numbers, um, is the gift of tongues, and, and we're just topping this off here. Is the gift of tongues of the Lord the real one? Is it absolutely is. It, it, it must have been a wonderful, um, amazing thing to behold. But what's happening today is not anywhere near that. And the, the dangerous part is not just. You know, we all probably do things that are slightly erroneous and we don't know about it, but this um, has replaced biblical salvation. Um, it, is re- it has become the, uh, the sign of spirituality, and we'll talk about that actually some later this morning as well. So uh, if you're still concerned about that issue, we'll deal with it in depth uh, later this summer on the Sunday morning message. So for now, we're going to pick up where we left off at the silence of women issue, and we'll, we'll pray and then we'll get going with that. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you now thankful for this Lord's Day, thankful for the chance to stop the busyness of the very difficult lives that we all have, Lord. Monday through Saturday is hard for every one of us for different reasons. We live in a world that doesn't like Christ, hates followers of Christ, and certainly, uh, Lord, uh, is, is not the kingdom that will come. And so we take the Lord's Day as a blessed refuge, and I pray that our minds would be open to know your word all the better. And we pray that it would be a blessing to you to see us learn, and it would be a blessing to each person here to learn more of your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We will eventually have some sort of sound system in here. If I talk at this level, are you okay? Can you hear that? I, I don't want to blow my voice uh, all the way. So um, so let's talk about the silence of women in just a moment. Um, I, I may say something about this earlier, but as you know, it's, you know, once in a while you get a little victory. And, and we saw that Roe v. Wade was uh, reversed this week. And that is a glorious thing. And um, we're thankful for that. What does that mean? Does that mean that our country is on the road to uh, revival? No. Uh, Not one person fell to their knees and received Christ Jesus into their lives because Roe v. Wade was uh, was, uh, overturned. Um, There's even debate as to whether it will actually save lives because there are still so many states that abortion is legal in. Uh, There's no doubt it will save lives, and so we're thankful for that. Um, At the very best... This has probably averted the wrath of God maybe a little bit longer. Uh, I, I think the prevailing opinion of very godly men is that um, you can't just undo 65 million murders um, over the course of 50 years. That doesn't just go away by changing the law. There still must be retribution for that. Um, 
So, but it is a victory, and you, you've probably seen in the news that people who no longer can think logically and certainly can't think spiritually are, are just going haywire. They're going nuts um, <clears throat> because uh, very similar to what happened in pre-war Nazi Germany. I'm reading a book about it right now by Erwin Lutzer. It's just fascinating um, that the same thing happened, that as a group, as a culture, our country overall has decided on one particular narrative that they believe, and therefore they can't think logically and think critically anymore. They only see that. And that's why even somebody who is, uh, who is pro-abortion, you, you can't use logic with them. You can't use science, which ironically it used to be um, that, that they use scientific arguments. Well, now everybody knows that this is a baby. Everybody knows that, so they don't use that argument much anymore. Um, but they're going crazy because they are spiritually darkened. So no law changed that. Um, in fact, all it did was bring it out all the more. So we're thankful for that. And, and praise the Lord for all the babies that will be saved because of the, that change in law. Um, but uh, don't think it's, don't, don't fall for the old, the old trap that, oh, America's on its way to revival. When we're in revival, you'll know it. You'll know it because the churches are filled and um, you think about, I've read a lot about the Second Great Awakening in the mid-1750s. Um, the Second Great Awakening, you think about this, in the 13 colonies in which you could count the people in millions, um, tens of thousands of people getting saved, like a significant uh, percentage of the population. It wasn't just a few churches here and there. Churches were being filled. Um, revival meetings were happening, not because the Methodists of the, like the 1850s were making revival meetings happening. Revival meetings were happening because people would demand, please come preach again tomorrow. Come preach again the next day. Come preach again the next day. Um, so that's a revival, and we'll know it when it's happening. Um, and, and that's what I'm hoping for. That's what I'm praying for. I hope that the Lord uh, holds off on, uh, on judgment. But considering that uh, the United States of America is, because of Roe v. Wade, the single most murderous nation in history, um, and considering that we are the, we are the uh, originators of every major cult and spiritual error in the world, in America, um, you know, we pray for our nation. And I thank the Lord I'm born here, still think uh, America is great because we're called to think that. But um, we pray for revival and we're thankful for that law being repealed. But it's not a, uh, it's not a spiritual revival. It's a, it's a great legal precedent that might help in some other areas. But we pray for the gospel. So what does that mean? I, I, I read a little yesterday. What does that mean that the church does differently? Absolutely nothing. We keep going. We keep proclaiming the gospel. So I know that's been a big issue. But uh, for us, we just keep our nose to the grindstone, right? And we just keep proclaiming Christ. Well, I, per- I, I would imagine that some of that was just to have, give me the opportunity to avoid the topic of the silence of women in church for a while. While I would love to skip that, that is one that is a, a difficult issue for us. And we find that in 1 Corinthians 14, and I'm going to go ahead and read that passage to you. 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 36, and this is under the heading of interpretive issues. But what does this actually mean? But 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 36, it's in the context of a whole section on orderly worship. 
verse 33, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? So we'll just talk about this here. Um, why is this an interpretive issue? If you have your Bibles open, look back to chapters, three chapters, to chapter 11, verse 5. Chapter 11, verse 5. But every wife, which is, uh, can be just woman, every wife or woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So what is, what is the wife doing in this verse? She's speaking. So how does that uh, mesh with chapter 14 where Paul says, for they are not permitted to speak? Well, let's kind of talk to this for just a little bit. I'll just kind of go through some bullet points here that, that I think will help put some perspective on this. Um, verse 33 for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So, what does that do for us? That, first of all, eliminates the argument that some have said, well, the church at Corinth was a particularly problematic church, so that really applies just to them. Um, that they just had a bunch of really, really talk of the women, and so Paul just said, that's it, you're done, no more talking. No, he says, as in all the churches of the saints. So, he is giving a principle that is across the board. That is, uh, that is not specific to geography, and I might add, not specific to time either, not specific to era. So, this is in a very specific context, and that context is that of orderly worship when the, the whole church is gathered together for instruction and for worship together. So, <clears throat> he talks about, as the law says... In verse 34, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. What law is Paul speaking of? little side note here, this is not the Apostle Paul suddenly saying we're under parts of the law of Moses. What he's doing is a, is a great technique and, and a right use of the Old Testament, and that is to take the Old Testament law principles and apply them to the New Testament without putting them under the law. So, what is the principle? What is the law that Paul is speaking of? He's speaking of the fact that in public feasts, in the Old Testament law, the the feasts that the people were commanded to gather together, there's never any requirement for women to go to those feasts. They're not required to do so except for one, and that is the gathering of the sabbatical year. During the sabbatical year, all the family comes. So this law is given in an example and given as an example, and in this case, there's a reiteration of this principle that now becomes a New Testament principle. Why is that law important in this context? It's important because Old Testament and now New Testament sees the man as leading in public worship. If a woman stayed home from a feast, she wasn't breaking a commandment. That is not to say all the ladies get to stay home from church. What he's, what he's saying is, is that the man is leading in public worship. You, you can't read the Old Testament 
without seeing that there were certain restrictions for women. And that's based on God's created order, not on any sense of inequality. It's just God's created order. So in verse 36, what he's basically saying, or was it from you that the word of God came, or are you the only ones that has reached? He's saying you don't have the right to make the rules. You come under the regulations that govern all the churches of Jesus Christ. And, and they're, they're, they're dotted lines, meaning when you came to Grace Bible Church, you weren't handed a rule book. There, there are a few things that we abide by, and it creates what the whole section in 1 Corinthians 14 is about, orderly worship. I, I don't know if, uh, I, I know a few of you have, uh, and I've had this opportunity uh, more for research reasons, but maybe a few of you have been into an utterly chaotic, uh, charismatic type service. And I say charismatic type because the theology of the church doesn't matter anymore. Uh, that's, uh, I'll explain that later this morning. Um, but if you've been there, what's it characterized by? It's characterized by disorder. It's characterized by lack of organization. And in fact, that's seen as spiritual, that we're letting the spirit lead. Um, I've had in our church guests come and say, was your sermon spirit led? In other words, was it spontaneous? And I'm kind of hiding my notes. You know, I, I bring 50 pages of notes to church every week. And for that type of person, that's not spirit-led. Spirit-led means that I walk to the pulpit and something zaps me at that moment and, and I say whatever comes to my mind. Um, that's a great way to be a heretic. Because if I said what came to my mind all the time, you wouldn't agree with it because it wouldn't be correct. Spirit-led is not disorganized. The whole section here is about order. That's the whole point. And so when he says... The women should keep silent. Does this mean absolute literal silence? No, it can't mean that. Because in chapter 11, he's already talked about women speaking, prophesying. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. In this context, he is talking about when the elders give up, get, get up to give teaching to the whole church, a woman is to remain silent. That's the immediate context. Bigger context would show us that everyone is to remain silent, men and women. There's a particular uh, pointed uh, uh, direction here at the women, partly to the husbands. And we see this here when he says, let, their, let them ask their husbands at home. I'll get to that in just a minute. The, the whole point is, is that a sermon is not a dialogue. A sermon is not a conversation. It is not a back and forth. So there was not to be a dialogue and an asking of questions. Um, when I pastored a smaller church in Texas, once in a while, uh, th- there is the weirdest thing. I'm just preaching my heart out. And somebody raises their hand. And when you're kind of in a small room, you can't, uh, yes, right there in the second row. And so I just finally got to the point where I waved it off. I, it was a weird thing. Our little central Texas culture was a culture of I do what I want, when I want, how I want. And so that idea of submitting even in, in church was very difficult. So what is it about this text that we need to learn? This is specific to a time of preaching, a time of instruction that the women, like the men, are to remain silent, that preaching is not interactive. Um, what we're very, very clear about here also is that no woman is to teach or exercise authority over a man. That's just, that is just clear as a bell um, from Scripture. So within the context of the public assembly and worship during this time of teaching by the elders, 
then everybody's to be silent. There's to be quiet. Because, and I'm going to, let me just take a little digression here. Do you realize what a gift that is to all of us? First of all, it's a gift to me because I don't have my brain blown up by interruptions all the time. But it's a gift to you because when I teach you something that is new to you or that you might even have an emotional reaction to tonight, I'm doing a a message in two parts today because there was just too much. Tonight, I'm going to deal with the issue of the cultural practice of hand raising in church and where that came from. That's an emotional issue for some people. I will assure everybody that we don't have snipers in the balcony that are taking people out. You know, there's no, you're not going to you know, be dragged out or anything like that. But the reason preaching is designed to be a listening activity is because it gives you the opportunity to process truth, to even work through an immediate emotional reaction and let critical thinking take over. So that's why it's so important. It can't be an interactive thing because it, um, it disrupts that time of teaching. Now, in the New Testament church, what did they not bring with them to church every Sunday? Nobody brought a Bible. They didn't have a completed New Testament, especially when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians. Uh, maybe at that point, maybe half the New Testament is done, if even that. And it certainly wasn't in everybody's hands yet. So you had apparently in, a, in an average worship service, you had a time of prophesying. Can I put another spin on that? Sunday school. You had a time that was less formal. A time where there was interaction, where the Lord miraculously was speaking through people in an orderly fashion. Um, And sometimes when the gift of tongues was still in in operation, that gift of prophecy happened in different languages that you hadn't learned because people were coming in off the street who didn't know your language and didn't know the gospel. So that's why, as we mentioned last week, that's why the gospel was spreading like wildfire because language was not a barrier. Um, even today, wouldn't that be glorious? Uh, the average missionary has to take three years to learn the indigenous language if they're going to go preach somewhere. So you had the less formal time of prophesying. Uh, <clears throat> now, in, in BTI, in our Sunday school here, um, mostly I do all the talking. And that's because you've seen my BTI notebook. We have all of this to get through, right? But sometimes we do Q&A Have you ever noticed us saying this is for men only? We don't do that. Why? Because there's a a, there should be a wonderful informal opportunity for um, the best part of the church, in my opinion, the ladies to interact and to talk. Uh, We would apply this to a small group setting, to even smaller Sunday school classes, to more informal gatherings Um, that there is there is that informality of interaction that is glorious and is is truly wonderful. But when you get to the, the highest point of our gathering, where we are quiet before the opened word of God, at that point, the conversation stops. It just ceases. And so even that's not just about women. That is about the whole church. little side note here. <clears throat> you notice this. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Uh, what does that imply? That implies, and I, I've applied this before, when, when a woman asks me a question, I will ask, have you asked your husband about it? And unfortunately, the answer most of the time is, he didn't have a clue, he told me to ask you. Okay, that's fine. 
Um, but at least ask your husband first. But uh, men, what this do, should do for you is light a little bit of a fire under you to get the answers. Um, and next time your wife asks you a theological question, the easy thing to do is say, email Pastor Steve, he'll have the answer. Um, the harder thing to do is say, I have no clue, but can I take a week and look into it? Uh, um, just a little clue, your wives will be amazed by you if you'll do that. So that, that takes a little work, but that's the principle here. So there's the silence of women. Any, any questions on that, which I'm scared to answer? Here we go. By a woman. All right, Debbie. <laughs> If you're unmarried, then yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. You, I think the point here is um, that, and I, I read one commentator who said that probably the most talkative women in the church were the married ones. And so, so Paul is eliminating a lot of that by saying, talk to your husband first. So, um, yeah, just like anybody in the body of Christ, that is not to restrict anybody at all. So, yeah, sure. That makes sense. What other question? We'll go with Ed, and then. Uh... Yeah, in the charismatic churches I grew up, my grandmother was a an evangelist in the in the Pentecostal church, and they will refer to many women in Scripture that they say were, you know, were teachers and such. But the thing that in, within that denomination, if you have if you have the Holy Ghost, and I'm using the vernacular I grew up with, not the vernacular that's we, biblical, but we, if you have the Holy Ghost, you can't deny a, a woman's position if she's been. You know, this is when she stands up and says, I'm anointed of God. You just accepted it. This is the whole problem in the charismatic movement. Yeah. Because somebody mm-hmm. will, once someone says, thus saith the Lord to me, the argument ends. You can't talk with them about what, whatever it is because it ends there because you can't speak against God. Yeah. Well, we have to make Holy Ghost okay because we sing it every Sunday. Okay. Um, it's just... <laughs> It's what the King James Version referred to as, as spirit. I'm, I'm going to comment on that in a minute, but let me, let me get Teresa's question first. What was going on historically with women that made them feel like he needed to save them? The culture in Corinth and in the Roman world as a whole, I, I know we sort of think of ourselves as progressive, but history has had lots of ebbs and flows. Um, but the the... Women's rights movement today uh, doesn't even cast a shadow over what it was like in the Roman world. Um, it was the same problems, exact same problems. Uh, you, you, had, you had women who uh, wanted to assert their rights to not wear clothing in public. You had women who wanted to assert their rights legally to um, not submit to a husband. Um, and that's why... Uh, Paul is so clear about this. If you're a Christian, you're following God's created order, and that is that you submit to your husband. But uh, a, a women's independence movement is not a new thing. It's not a 20th century phenomenon. So it was happening there. Um, and on top of that, of course, there's just everybody's sin nature. And the fact that going all the way back to the curse in Genesis 3, Part of the curse of men is that we tend to either be passive or abusively domineering with little in between. And part of the curse on women is instead of following, they want to lead when they should be following um, in, in marriage context and church context. So he's fighting against the culture at the time and he's fighting against just the normal sin nature. Um, but the, a study of, of feminism in the ancient Roman world is a fascinating study. You read it, it's like, this sounds like 
the 20th century and the early 21st century. Um, because it was. It's just, it just came out a little bit differently, but it, it absolutely was. Um, in some ways, frankly, we haven't even sunk to yet. So it wasn't a new issue. Good question. Coming back to, to Ed's comment um, about uh, women in the charismatic church, uh, error in the church is a slippery slope because once you accept one error, you kind of start to accept them all. And so you don't have an objective uh, means of truth anymore. And um, I, had, I, I get the most interesting emails, and I, I try to delete them, but once in a while one catches my eye. Um, so I got an email this past week from a self-proclaimed female apostle um, who has this massive worldwide ministry that's so massive that she has to answer her own emails. And... Um, <laughs> So, of course, she's asking for money because God told her this, this, and this. So, usually, you know, my hand's going to the delete button, and I looked at my watch. I've got time. So, I just sent her a little email back, and I just said, "By uh, how do I know you're an apostle? Um, what scripture would show me that there are, were ever female apostles? Um, what is it that, that God is having you to do uh, compared to, uh, concerning the gospel? And I asked her a series of questions, and I got back this giant email, which proved to me that she's a one-woman show, uh, this giant email just saying, you're operating in the flesh. You are of the devil and this, this and this and that. And, and I just, I sent one reply back. You didn't answer a single one of my questions from the Bible. Can you just answer my questions? Um, and then I realized I left my label, my labels and my letters down at the bottom. So she probably didn't like that. But it was, she expected me, as Ed said, she expected me to believe that she was anointed of God because she said so. No one is anointed of God, if we can use that phrase, if they're contrary to Scripture. So uh, that's just, and that, that's just getting worse. Uh, you would think we would learn, but we're not learning. What are the questions about the silence of women? We're doing tongues and women. This is, we're just bombing all these horrible issues. So, Any others? Yeah. How does this relate with the uh, head coverings? Oh, the head coverings. Well, let's keep this really simple. In 1 Corinthians 11, a head covering is a symbol of authority that said, I believe in godly submission to my husband. Um, what was it? Not totally certain, but all the women knew what it was. And they knew what he meant. Um, it, that was something we, we don't necessarily practice that because it's the spiritual principle behind it. In this particular case, in this culture, um, being married and saying, I will wear a head covering, said, I'm not submitting to my husband. That was, so, um, that, that was so inculcated into the culture that it was something they kind of just went along with. So what it was exactly, there's a lot of debate, but all the women knew what it was because Paul doesn't explain it here. So, uh, but we always take it back to the heart issue. Um, and the, you know, what we do outwardly does reflect our hearts. It doesn't determine our hearts, but it does reflect our hearts. So, good question. You notice how I avoided a big, long answer on that one. They knew what it was. We know the principle behind it. Any other questions on that topic? Yes, Emily. So if the women that prophesy, is that against No, uh, not at all. This is a, that would, that would be during an informal time um, Let's say if we're having a, a small group Bible study and a woman says, you know, in my quiet time this week, I really noticed something in this particular passage. And, and here's what the Lord taught me. That's wonderful. That's terrific. That's an informal time um, that does not 
uh, deny male headship any more than when, when my wife says to me, uh, I'd like to sit down and have a talk with you for a while, which first of all, oh boy, I'm about to be sanctified. That's all right. That doesn't, that's not against male headship. That's her doing me a favor. That's her being kind. So headship doesn't mean other silence of everyone under you. That's, so no, it wouldn't go against that at all. And, and we go with what, you know, in hermeneutics you call the preponderance of scripture. Uh, you don't ever build a doctrine on one verse. And, and that's just, um, uh, that, that's just good Bible study. You know, so you take it with everything. Uh, let me just point out two or three obvious things about male headship. If God believed in male headship, um, I'm sorry, if God believed in female headship, when Jesus was appointing 12 apostles, wouldn't that have been a great opportunity? Um, when Paul gives the qualifications of an elder in the church, wouldn't it have been a great opportunity to leave out the husband of one wife, to leave out one woman man, which is, you can't get around that. It's a man who has one woman is a, is a qualification. Uh, and third, wouldn't it have been glorious if God believed in female headship in the church to change all the, I know this is a tender topic, change all the pronouns about male leaders in the church to they, not he. So, there were plenty of opportunities all through Scripture for God to make that clear. Um, does, that, does that negate the glory and the wonder and the joy of being a woman? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, we, are, we are given roles. We are given uh, gifts. That I've, I've often said if I was pastoring a church devoid of women, I'd quit. It, it's, that would be so depressing. All the men would be looking at each other like, what are we even doing here? Because, so it has nothing to do with worth, nothing to do with value. It's just order. Any more so than if, let's just say, those doors open and in March, 100 children. Uh, How many of you here have children under the age of 10 in here? All right. So they're all marching in and they come up to the front and they say, we're tired of being put down. We're, we demand our rights. What would you as parents say? You would say, we love you. We cherish you. You are, you are. Beautiful and wonderful, but you come within a created order and you fall into that order. So um, you, there's no such thing as, as a Christian who's happy and joyful, who wants to step outside of God's created order. That person does not exist because God created us to obey him. And when we obey him, then we're, um, then we're the happiest and the most joyful. Well, that's a great topic. I need to keep going, though, um, since we're still on the first slide just want to point out some key passages in 1 Corinthians. Jay's going to kill me if I turn this into three lectures from two. <clears throat> key passages in 1 Corinthians. And I'm just going to give you some headings here. I have it up on the slide, I believe. Yes. Um, chapter 2, verse 14. Very key in our times now. The natural man cannot accept spiritual things. They can't discern spiritual things. That's why having a debate about the Bible with an unbeliever is a fruitless exercise. Give them the gospel. Just give them the gospel. Um, if, if an unbeliever wants to debate with you about pre versus post millennialism, you just say, you know what? That's, that's pointless. I'd love to talk about that. Um, but how about you be in the kingdom first before we talk about the iterations of the kingdom? Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. 
How do you know an immature believer? They're only able to drink milk, not solid food. And this was one of Paul's rebukes to them, that you're still liking the, you're still liking the milk. You're not liking the solid food. Uh, if we view hearing the word of God as an act of worship, then we try harder. If we view uh, hearing the word of God as entertainment or something that's passive, uh, then, then you don't try as hard. Um, <clears throat> it's the oddest thing to me, and this is, this is what the Spirit does. As a pastor, I get feedback on both chapter 2, verse 14, and chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. The feedback on chapter 2, verse 14, I get, um, particularly from new members, is I'm, I'm eating meat. I'm, I'm drinking from a fire hose. All, all those sorts of phrases of just swallowing truth as fast as you can. And there's this, this glorious um, uh, joy to that. And along with that, there's the frustration when somebody who's you know, 50 years old says, how come nobody's ever taught me this before? And so I understand that. Then I get the flip side. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, I'm sorry, I can't stay at Grace Bible Church. I don't understand a word you're saying. I just don't get it. You're too complicated. It's too much. I just, I don't want to hear, I need something simple. And we always try to say, if you're hearing the word of God, which almost everybody in the room is saying is clear, and you're saying it's confusing, that's a spiritual issue. As, that doesn't mean that we don't all have learning to do. And I know sometimes things like, wow, that's a lot of information. And I, and I get that. But Paul is telling them, you're still, you're still on baby food. You should be teaching others by now, not, not just drinking milk. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 is a key passage because it negates the American church myth that the church is just all about loving anyone and everyone. That is not what the church is about. The church is about being the gathered, redeemed people of God who love the lost, but we don't allow people to be in the church, name the name of Christ, and continue in a horrible, sinful lifestyle um, that they had prior to salvation or prior to their profession of salvation. There's a purity of the church aspect. And Paul says in no uncertain terms, he gives a list of adulterers and revilers and thieves. They will have no part in the kingdom. And so that's, that's a key thought on the purity of the church. Chapter 6, 9 through 11, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the key is forgiveness. Such were some of you. Chapter 7, 1 through 5, your body is not your own in marriage. Chapter 7, 12 through 16, uh, Paul dealt with a situation that, that by some historians' uh, estimation, more than the majority of the marriages in the Corinthian church consisted of unequally yoked marriages. Just because that's the nature of the, the, the newness of the church in the gospel, so Paul deals with that issue. Uh, chapter 11, 30, 23 through 34, interesting that in a, in a book that talks to a church that's immature, we get our best instruction on the Lord's table in all of the Bible. And so we, we quote that often. And then in chapter 13, 4 through 13, you have famously called the love chapter. Um, but keep in mind, it's sandwiched between chapter 12, stop using your spiritual gifts sel- selfishly, and chapter 14, be a church of order, and God is a God of order. And right in between there, your motivation for those things is love. So as often as I've uh, preached 1 Corinthians 13 at weddings, that's not the context. But we'll allow for that at the wedding. 
So just some key passages there. All right, now we'll make it to 2 Corinthians. I told you before last week that if you know uh, all of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians isn't that big of a stretch. Historical and theological themes. The attack against Paul. And you don't have to write all this down, I, I don't think, and you can get the slides if you want to. But just to, just to say very briefly, um, some in the church were attacking Paul. And I said that 2 Corinthians was his letter of relief, that the church had accepted uh, his rebuke. But he takes that opportunity. Think about you as parents. It's not when your kids are, are angry and rebellious that you have the best time to speak into their lives and to tell them what they're really doing. It's after they've calmed down and repented. That's when you can really speak into their lives. So that's what Paul is doing here. Now he's saying, boy, I love your repentance and our relationship is restored. Isn't that wonderful? Now, let me tell you what's really happening. And he, and he brings it home by now being honest about how he was being attacked. And so... Because of those attacks, which I've listed here for you, um, because of those attacks, he finally gets to a point where he can explain his own ministry. And I said last time, 2 Corinthians explains the gospel ministry um, at, a, at a level that really no other book of the Bible does. And there's a lesson here, by the way. You can read all these. Vacillating, dictatorial, uncredentialed. His gospel is obscure, sought to destroy. He's a coward, doesn't maintain dignity. Not an original apostle. He collected money for himself. He walked after the flesh. As a pastor, I read those and go, yeah, I get that. And just the lesson for you is that ministers of the gospel go through more than you can possibly imagine in terms of criticism. Um, it just is. So, can I say this? Don't be that person. Um, not, for, not for my sake, but for your own sake. Because when you get enough people like that, and praise the Lord, that's not the case at Grace. When you get enough people like that, um, it causes a disease called resume-itis. It is the swelling of the resume and getting it out. Because after a while, human beings can only take so much. So, that's what Paul walked through. So, because of those attacks... Another theme, he's able to give a defense. And so he defends his, his ministry. One of his defenses is his own suffering. And in chapter 11, he has this massive list of everything he's gone through as a minister of the gospel. And the implicit statement is, have you gone through these things? Because I have. And so there's, a, there's some respect there. You have the theme of Paul characterizing his opponents. He characterizes them as false apostles, chapter 11, and uh, super apostles, chapter 11 and chapter 12. And he's, being, he's exaggerating. You know, well, I'm only an apostle, but, but, but these men are super apostles. <clears throat> um, Paul's afflictions and weakness, but God's comfort and strength. Chapter 12, verse 9, but he said to me, he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I've been, I'm going to comment on this just for a moment. I've been in the gospel ministry long enough to know a lot of pastors. And I know men who are, they're sharp, they're clean cut, they're brilliant, and they're, they're wonderful pastors. And I've also known men, you go to the Shepherds Conference, and you, you look around, you go, this is the goofiest bunch of men all gathered together I've ever seen. I, I've known men, 
I, I know men now who are, from a worldly standpoint, a little bit odd. They're they're socially uh, uh, awkward at times. They I had a seminary professor that never had his jacket on straight one time ever. I don't know why exactly, and Jay knows who I'm talking about. Um, and these men faithfully lead their flocks. And if you ask their church, what do you think of your odd pastor? They would say, oh, we love him. What a shepherd. We, we love him. So Paul is just an example of, uh, of a man who outwardly is not particularly impressive. And in fact, that was one of the Corinthians uh, uh, problems with him, that he wasn't as impressive as they would have hoped. You have the theme of Satan. It's brought up five times in Second Corinthians, worth noting. And then, of course, the theme of the ministry brought up in seven different chapters. So if you want to understand the heart of a pastor and the joys and the trials of ministry, 2 Corinthians is, is the book for you. So what is the purpose? Purpose and structure. Paul defended his apostolic ministry, authority rather, and ministry against a pointed attack from his foes at Corinth. So the church as a whole had repented and they were eager to welcome him back. But now he was able to sharpen his focus to those that were still um, against his ministry. Then the literary structure, you can see that for yourself, his character, his collection, and his credentials. Uh, just a little side note here, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is the greatest example of leadership in a church fundraising drive in all of the Bible. And boy, he doesn't pull any punches. I love the fact that, uh, that he talks about uh, the churches of Macedonia. And he says to the church at Corinth, you know, you said you said you were going to be generous with this collection, which is for the Jerusalem church um, to help them. And boy, just just wanted you to know that I've been telling all the churches in Macedonia what a terrific collection we're expecting from you when we arrive. That's genius leadership right there. Um, so I, I love those chapters. We preached a lot there when we were starting Joyful Generosity. And then you have his character, his collection and his credentials. His defense of his apostleship in chapters 10 through 13. Um, I sent the email uh, to this woman and I, I referenced those chapters. And I, I said, do you feel you're in the same category as Paul in First Corinthians 10 or Second Corinthians 10 through 13? She didn't answer the question. So, um, so she clearly is not on every level. One interpretive issue. Probably not one that you stay up late at night thinking of, but it's one that I, I think we misinterpret frequently, at least in our own minds, and that is the issue of the thorn in the flesh, chapter 12, verse 7, that Paul had. Uh, probably the most common view, without a lot of looking deeply at it, is that this was a physical malady that Paul had. There's two reasons for that view um, that I can think of off the top of my head. The first one is it's, it's called the thorn in the flesh, in the body. And so if you take that not uh, metaphorically, the flesh can also mean just as a human being. But if you take it not metaphorically, then that's a physical problem. Um, the second reason this might be taken as a physical malady is Galatians chapter 4. It's pretty clear that when Paul stopped at the, in the area of Galatia, one of the reasons he stopped was because he was having some sort of massive physical problem. And some think it was uh, because, with his eyes or one eye because he told the Galatian church, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me if you had been able to. So for those two reasons, people tend to think it's a physical malady. And Paul did have physical maladies. We know that from Galatians 
But that's probably not what this is talking about. Um, if you ask any pastor, would you rather deal with uh, would you rather deal with a physical problem or a problem person in the church? Oh, give me cancer any day. That's a glorious thing compared to uh, a problem person in the church. Some think it was just adverse circumstances. No real evidence for that. Probably the best, uh, the best interpretation that this was a personal enemy, a foe in the church. Now, we could break that down further. Uh, were they false apostles of chapter 11, verse 23? Maybe. Were they the Corinthians themselves? Uh, probably not, because Paul says he loves them and he, he adores them. Um, there, there's a big difference between a church member who acts in ignorance and who, who just doesn't understand some things. You treat them like sheep and, and you love them. Um, there's a big difference between that and the person who goes on a pointed intellectual attack. And that would probably be the best interpretation. It was, it was one particular constant opponent. We know from the book of Acts that there were Jews that followed Paul around just to mess up his ministry. Um, I know a man who went through a horrible, terrible time in the church and, and finally got out of that situation. It took him two or three years to kind of recover from the, from the horror that he went through. And he finally was candidating in another church. And it was a large church. They had a banquet with like a thousand people there to welcome him as their new pastor. And some guy from his old church flew across the country to show up and crash that banquet and stand up and try to wreck that moment. Well, we think, how horrible. Well, that happened to Paul on a regular basis. Hey, can you imagine you arrive in the new city? Ah, fresh start, new ministry. And you look back behind you. Oh, you guys again? Here you are again. So there is probably a constant opponent. This is a person. The thorn in the flesh is a person. Chapter 12, verse 7 says this was a, a messenger. It's, it's the word for angel, which means messenger of Satan. And a messenger can be a man or it can be an angel. In this case, it's a man. A messenger of Satan to harass me. So that's who the thorn in the flesh is. It is a person. So what's the lesson? Don't be that. That's an easy lesson. Then you have the opponents of Paul in Corinth. Who are they? Some think they were, they were Gnostics. Uh, Gnosticism really didn't get going until the second century, but uh, there's something called proto-Gnosticism, kind of the beginnings of the higher knowledge, I know more than you because God said so, sort of a thing. Uh, some think it was Jewish Christians, but there weren't that many of them in Corinth. Probably the best uh, option are the Judaizers. These are legalists who demanded adherence to the law of Moses, and they were probably ones that followed Paul and tried to infiltrate the churches. Teachers who had come to Corinth and been welcomed by the undiscerning congregation. So, I have time for one more thing here, and that is just a couple of key passages. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is one of the greatest texts, just short texts, on what it means to be sanctified. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What is your goal in the Christian life? It is to be transformed from one degree of glory to another, that your reflection of the character of Christ should be greater 
in 20 years than it is today. It should be greater next year than it is today. It should be greater today than it was a year ago. That's a, that's a wonderful promise. We are being transformed. And notice what this means. It means beholding the glory of the Lord. That the more you're transformed, the more you're beholding His glory. And it works the other way as well. I love that verse. <clears throat> and then chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. Chapter 5, verses 16 through 21 is a bombshell of Reformed theology. It's just a compact little theological lesson in 1 Corinthians five sixteen through 21. And I'll just read it very quickly. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The, new, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There's the doctrine of regeneration and new life in Christ. The old has passed away. The new has come. That's security and salvation. That is the assurance of salvation, your security. Chapters 18, verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That is the doctrine of reconciliation, that your relationship with God is now fixed. You have the practice of evangelism. Chapter, verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. You get that? You are ambassadors of Christ, and God appeals with the lost through you. What a tremendous thing. And then verse 21, In my mind, the most compact statement on the doctrine of justification in all the New Testament, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Regeneration, new life in Christ, security and salvation, reconciliation, evangelism, justification. Those verses preach because they are just theologically rich. And then probably at a less high lofty level, I like chapter 9 verses 6 through 15. That the theme is God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. I, I have pastor friends that have been reluctant to preach on giving. I, maybe I'm just socially awkward, so I don't ever have a reluctance to preach on giving. Um, because Paul doesn't. He says everyone uh, should give cheerfully. Verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. I want you to know this, that an option is not zero. That there is always something, but you make that decision. There's just a cheerfulness to it. That's what one of, this is. That's the exact reason we called our building campaign "Joyful Generosity." Not what kind of campaign would be, you know, reluctant giving. <clears throat> no, with joyful generosity. So Second Corinthians is just so rich. It's so rich for us. Um, I can take questions for just a couple of minutes on this or any other topic.